very soon, many of us will have the opportunity to participate in choosing a new leader for this country. We can do that by voting in the general election on December 12th. Now, of course, we're actually voting for a local MP to represent us in Parliament. But I think it's hard for us to vote locally without considering what that means nationally in terms of who the Prime Minister is going to be. And I bring up the subject of politics, fully aware that many of you may be sick to the back teeth of it already. You may have come here this morning hoping to escape from it for a while. But we can never truly escape from politics. Because for better or for worse, every nation in the world has a leader or leaders. And to some degree, that leader or leaders will have an impact on the lives of those they lead. So we can never really escape from politics. And neither can we afford to bury our head in the sand and try to ignore politics. As Christians, we are called to be concerned for the welfare of our nation and to pray for leaders. And since we have that responsibility, we have reason to be interested in what the Bible says about leaders. And this morning we come to a passage that has lots to tell us about the subject. We're picking up again this morning in the book of Jeremiah, in chapter 21. And if you're using a church Bible, it's page 780. And in the larger print Bibles, 1209. And we're going to take the time to read quite a chunk of this from chapter 21, verse 1, through to chapter 23, verse 8. Jeremiah 21. And before I read this, just be prepared to hear about a lot of kings in this passage. Eight different kings are going to be mentioned. Don't worry too much about trying to keep all their names straight or figure out who they all are. Just listen as we read for how these different kings are spoken about. And then we'll come back and see what this passage teaches us. Jeremiah chapter 21. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent, him, sent to him Pasher, son of Malchijah, and the priest Zephaniah, son of Masaiah. They said, Inquire now of the Lord for us, because Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us, as in times past, so that he will withdraw from us. But Jeremiah answered them, Tell Zedekiah, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands, which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians, who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city who survive the plague, sword, and famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. Furthermore, tell the people, this is what the Lord says. See, I am setting before you the way of life and the way of death. Whoever stays in this city will die by the sword, famine, or plague. But whoever goes out and surrenders to the Babylonians who are besieging you will live. They will escape with their lives. I have determined to do this city harm and not good declares the Lord. It will be given into the hands of the king of Babylon, and he will destroy it with fire. Moreover, say to the royal house of Judah, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says to you, house of David. Administer justice every morning. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. 
or my wrath will break out and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. I am against you, Jerusalem. You who live above this valley on the rocky plateau, declares the Lord. You who say, who can come against us? Who can enter our refuge? I will punish you as your deeds deserve, declares the Lord. I will kindle a fire in your forests that will consume everything around you. This is what the Lord says. Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. For if you are careful to carry out these commands, then kings who sit on David's throne will come through the gates of this palace, riding in chariots and on horses, accompanied by their officials and their people. But if you do not obey these commands, declares the Lord, I swear by myself that this palace will become a ruin. For this is what the Lord says about the palace of the king of Judah. Though you are like Gilead to me, like the summit of Lebanon, I will surely make you like a wasteland like towns not inhabited. I will send destroyers against you, each man with his weapons, and they will cut up your fine cedar beams and throw them into the fire. People from many nations will pass by this city and will ask one another, why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God and have worshipped and served other gods. Do not weep for the dead king or mourn his loss. Rather, weep bitterly for him who is exiled, because he will never return, nor see his native land again. For this is what the Lord says about Shalom, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king of Judah, but has gone from this place. He will never return. He will die in the place where they have led him captive. He will not see this land again. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just. So all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood and on oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother, alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master, alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Go up to Lebanon and cry out. Let your voice be heard in Bashan. Cry out from Abarim, for all your allies are crushed. I warned you when you felt secure, but you said, I will not listen. This has been your way from your youth. You have not obeyed me. The wind will drive all your shepherds away, and your allies will go into exile. You will be ashamed and disgraced because of all your wickedness. You who live in Lebanon, who are nestled in cedar buildings, how you will groan when pangs come upon you, pain like that of a woman in labor. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. 
I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians. I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born and there you both will die. You will never come back to the land you long to return to. Is this man, Jehoiachin, a despised broken pot, an object no one wants? Why will he and his children be hurled out, cast into a land they do not know? Oh, land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless, a man who will not prosper in his lifetime, for none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule any more in Judah. Woe to the shepherds who are destroying and scattering the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says to the shepherds who tend my people. Because you have scattered my flock and driven them away and have not bestowed care on them, I will bestow punishment on you for the evil you have done, declares the Lord. I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them and they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So then, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. This is God's word. And the beginning of this long passage comes right after a very significant sermon of Jeremiah's. We could call it the clay jar sermon. In chapter 19, we were told that God instructed Jeremiah to buy a clay jar from the potter. Then he was to take a group of prominent people, some of the elders and the priests, and he was to lead those people outside the city of Jerusalem. And then Jeremiah was to proclaim a reminder of all the evils the people of Judah were guilty of. And then at the climax of his sermon, Jeremiah was to take that clay pot he'd been holding and smash it on the ground. The point of that was to make it clear, God's patience has finally run out. After decades of Jeremiah's preaching, warning the people that God's judgment was hanging over them, calling them to turn back to God, forsaking their sin and their false gods. After decades of that message of warning, finally the smashed jar marks a turning point. There is no more opportunity to repent. Judgment can no longer be avoided. And it is going to be delivered by Judah's enemies. They will come and smash the city and the nation. Well, Jeremiah did what God told him to do. He preached the sermon. He smashed the jar at the appropriate point in the sermon. And then he came back inside Jerusalem and he preached the sermon all over again to the people who'd missed it the first time. And we know that caused a big stir in the city because Pasher, son of Immer, the official in charge of the temple of the Lord, Pasher was so ticked off by Jeremiah's sermon that he had Jeremiah beaten and put in the stocks overnight. That is the background to what we read here in chapter 21, verse 1. 
The word came to Jeremiah from the Lord when King Zedekiah sent to him Pasher son of Malchijah and the priest Zephaniah son of Maaseiah. They said, inquire now of the Lord for us because Nebuchadnezzar king of Babylon is attacking us. Perhaps the Lord will perform wonders for us as in times past so that he will withdraw from us, meaning Nebuchadnezzar. Zedekiah is the last king of Judah. In the years before his reign, the Babylonians had risen to become the world superpower of the day. And they'd already come to Jerusalem during the reign of the two previous kings of Judah. You can read about that in the final chapters of 2 Kings and the final chapters of 2 Chronicles. They've come twice before, and now they've come back again. We're not told how long it's been since that clay jar sermon. Almost certainly the sermon was preached before the previous Babylonian attacks. But when Jeremiah was compiling his messages into this book that we now have, he puts this incident with Zedekiah right after the clay jar sermon. And he does that to show how the king is being willfully deaf and blind to God's message. Even though the sermon was preached years before this, Zedekiah could not have missed that sermon. It must have been as famous in Jerusalem as that Winston Churchill speech is here in England today. You know that speech about fighting them on the beaches and the landing grounds and never surrendering. It must have been as famous as Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech is in America today. Zedekiah must have known the clay jar sermon. He knew God had said, Jerusalem will be smashed. But Zedekiah still sends Pasher. It's a different Pasher, this time the son of Malchijah. And he sends the priest Zephaniah to see if the Lord will get Judah out of the mess they've gotten themselves into. And they did get themselves into this mess. Second Kings tells us Nebuchadnezzar has come this time because Zedekiah rebelled against him. So there's been no repentance in Judah. There's been no acknowledgement that they deserve all this that's happening to them because of their sin. Zedekiah just assumes, well, it's God's job to deliver Judah from foreign kings. But God replies through Jeremiah and he tells Zedekiah, you're not understanding what's going on. You're asking me to send Nebuchadnezzar away, but I'm the one sending him against you. He is my instrument, God says, to bring the judgment I promised. Look again at verse 4. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I am about to turn against you the weapons of war that are in your hands which you are using to fight the king of Babylon and the Babylonians who are outside the wall besieging you. And I will gather them inside this city. I myself will fight against you with an outstretched hand and a mighty arm in furious anger and in great wrath. I will strike down those who live in this city, both man and beast, and they will die of a terrible plague. After that, declares the Lord, I will give Zedekiah, king of Judah, his officials and the people in this city who survived the plague, sword, and famine into the hands of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and to their enemies who want to kill them. He will put them to the sword. He will show them no mercy or pity or compassion. What Zedekiah needs to see is that the Lord is king of kings. All kings are ultimately under the Lord's authority. All leaders ultimately serve the Lord's purposes. Now that does not mean Nebuchadnezzar is a nice guy. He's not. Historians call him the Napoleon of his time. He was a power-hungry empire builder. He wanted to make a name for himself. That's why he built the famous Hanging Gardens of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar didn't see himself as the Lord's servant. 
but he was. And God's purposes, when this proud Babylonian attacked Judah, it was at one and the same time both Nebuchadnezzar's own idea and it was the Lord's way of smashing disobedient and stubborn Judah. When God says, I myself will fight against you, Judah, he's not saying he's literally going to draw a big sword in the sky or throw a flaming torch. God means, I will fight against you using the Babylonian soldiers and their swords and their flaming torches. And so God says in verse 9, if you want to live, Zedekiah, don't sit in Jerusalem waiting for me to save you. Go out and surrender. That's your only chance of getting out of this alive. The first lesson to learn from this passage about kings or presidents or prime ministers is that the Lord is boss of them all. Zedekiah thought he'd have the Lord on his side because Zedekiah is king of Judah. And don't they have the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord? Back in chapter 7, we learned the people love to say that like a magic mantra. Surely they think the Lord has to come when Zedekiah calls. And no doubt on Nebuchadnezzar's side, well, he must have thought the Lord was weak. After all, shouldn't the Lord have been protecting Judah since his temple was there? Surely, Nebuchadnezzar must have thought, he'd overcome the Lord by overcoming Judah. But in fact, the Lord was king of both Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar. The Lord did not serve Zedekiah. He was free to smash him in judgment. And by smashing Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar was not overcoming the Lord. The Lord's will was done against Zedekiah through Nebuchadnezzar. Doesn't that free you and me from being afraid of human leaders? And doesn't it free us also from putting too much hope in human leaders? The Lord is the only one to fear. And he's the only one worthy of our trust. But that does not mean human leaders are irrelevant. It doesn't mean when you go to vote on December 12th, you should just blindly tick any old box. No, leaders were God's idea and they have a God-given purpose. We can evaluate them with that purpose in mind. The purpose of kings and presidents and prime ministers is to do what is just and right. As we read through this passage earlier, you may have noticed the name David keeps coming up. At this point, David was already a figure from distant history. But he's hugely significant because God had put David in place as king, not just of Judah, but of all Israel, north and south at the time. And David's purpose was not to do his own thing as king. David was to reign as God's representative. The people David was in charge of were not David's people, they were God's people. The kingdom was God's, not David's. David was to do God's will, not his own will. And God's will was that his king do what was just and right for his people. That was the divinely given job description of every king who followed David. God reminds Zedekiah of it at the end of chapter 21. And then at the beginning of chapter 22, God sends Jeremiah to stand outside the palace and remind everyone of the king's responsibility. Have a look at chapter 22, verse 1. This is what the Lord says, Go down to the palace of the king of Judah and proclaim this message there. Hear the word of the Lord to you, king of Judah, you who sit on David's throne, you, your officials, and your people who come through these gates. 
This is what the Lord says. Do what is just and right. Rescue from the hand of the oppressor, the one who has been robbed. Do no wrong or violence to the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow. And do not shed innocent blood in this place. This is not a message of hope for Judah. It's a reminder of what kings are for. To sit on David's throne means to follow in the line of David. The line of kings who were to do the same thing David was called to do. To rule not for their own sakes, but for God's sake. To make Judah a place where God's good law was upheld. Where oppressors and exploiters had nowhere to hide. Where the vulnerable were cared for and protected. Where the strong did not have free hand to trample and abuse the weak. That's what God's law called for. That's what leaders are for. To serve God and the people, not to serve themselves. And notice how the job description really was to serve God and the people. The two go together. A leader who does not serve God will not do a good job of serving the people. Where does the passage tell us that? Well, the beginning of chapter 22 gave the call to do what is just and right. But look down to verse 8. This is explaining what will happen when Jerusalem is destroyed in the end. People from many nations will pass by this city and will ask one another, why has the Lord done such a thing to this great city? And the answer will be, because they have forsaken the covenant of their Lord, their God, and have, not, and have worshipped and served other gods. Back in verse 3, the king was called to do what is just and right. But here, when foreigners look at the devastated city in the future, they don't say, this city fell because the king didn't do what was just and right. They say, it fell because they forsook the Lord their God. And the point is, when a leader forsakes the Lord, he or she will also fail to do what is just and right for the people. Some will fail worse than others, of course. Not every bad leader is equally bad. But according to the Bible, good leadership starts with a good relationship with God. It starts with a healthy fear of the Lord. An acknowledgement of his position that produces a desire to listen to his word and honor him by ruling with righteousness and justice. According to the Bible, bad leadership, leadership that is unjust and unrighteous, that reveals a leader who is unfaithful to God. How could it be otherwise? God loves righteousness and justice. So those who follow God will love those things as well. They will work hard to bring those things to the people they rule and the people they lead. Maybe you're thinking, well, okay, but in three weeks' time, there aren't going to be any people like that on my ballot paper. Maybe you're right. But in that case, let's be praying for God's mercy. That he will give us leaders who in some sense fear him. Who at least don't trample all over what he says is just and right. Leaders like that are people who don't jump to support every fashionable cause that comes to prominence. They don't bow to whatever powerful interest group is shouting the loudest at the time. They don't try to save their own popularity at all costs by saying whatever they think people want to hear. And they don't disregard the lives of the most vulnerable group in society. The unborn child in the womb. 
Now, we may not be able to find many people like that on our ballot papers, but at least we know what we're looking for. We know what to pray for. And even as you and I take this seriously, and we must take it seriously, even as we desire the best leaders we can have, as we try to vote as wisely as we can, even as we do that, let's realize no human leader is going to deliver more than just a pale beginning of true justice and righteousness. They're not. And that truth is highlighted for us in the next section of this passage. Chapter, verses 10 to 19 of chapter 22 show us the trouble with kings. We've seen how King Zedekiah sparked this section off about kings. Sparked it off by asking for Jeremiah's help against Nebuchadnezzar. And what seems to be going on in these next verses is that Jeremiah repeats messages he had delivered to the three kings who went before Zedekiah. Those messages are gathered together here to show no human leader can be our savior. At this moment in time, we're probably not tempted to think that way about any of our leaders. We may be unimpressed by them all. But in times like ours, it's never too long before a leader emerges who we will be tempted to put our hope in. Often in this kind of situation, a leader comes to prominence who seems like a savior. That's why these verses are so important. Because they start with two kings that Judah had put a lot of hope in. Chapter 22, verse 10. Do not weep for the dead king or mourn his loss. Rather, weep bitterly for him who is exiled, because he will never return nor see his native land again. For this is what the Lord says about Shalom, son of Josiah, who succeeded his father as king of Judah, but has gone from this place. He will never return. He will die in the place where they have led him captive. He will not see this land again. Chapter 1, verse 2 tells us Jeremiah began his ministry in the 13th year of the reign of King Josiah. And Josiah may well have been Judah's best king. 2 Kings tells us he turned to the Lord with all his heart and soul and strength in accordance with the law of Moses. It's hard to get any better than that. And yet for all of that, Josiah got himself involved in a foolish battle he had no need to get involved in, and his reign ended prematurely. He died in that foolish battle. Josiah is the dead king mentioned here in verse 10. And after his death, the people of Judah did something very, very unusual. They made Josiah's youngest son the next king. The normal procedure was that the oldest son would take the throne from his father. But the people intervened to change that. Shalom, also known as Jehoahaz, was the people's choice. They obviously saw something in him that impressed them more than any of his brothers. They somehow managed to get him on the throne. But Shalom's reign lasted Three months before the Egyptian pharaoh came and carried him off to Egypt in chains where he died. So Josiah, a very good king, made a foolish mistake that ended his reign and his successor, the popular choice for king, proved to be one of the weakest kings Judah ever had. That's the trouble with kings and presidents and prime ministers. They let you down. And sometimes they let you down massively. That was the case with Shalom's successor on the throne. Pharaoh put Shalom's brother Jehoiakim on the throne. 
That was one of the brothers the people of Judah had blocked from getting the throne in the first place because they didn't think he was up to it. But they end up having him as their king anyway, installed as Pharaoh's puppet king. And look how that turned out. Verses 13 to 19 are the message Jeremiah preached to him, to Jehoiakim. Woe to him who builds his palace by unrighteousness, his upper rooms by injustice, making his own people work for nothing, not paying them for their labor. He says, I will build myself a great palace with spacious upper rooms. So he makes large windows in it, panels it with cedar, and decorates it in red. Does it make you a king to have more and more cedar? Did not your father have food and drink? He did what was right and just, so all went well with him. He defended the cause of the poor and needy, so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? But your eyes and your heart are set only on dishonest gain, on shedding innocent blood, and on oppression and extortion. Therefore, this is what the Lord says about Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my brother, alas, my sister. They will not mourn for him. Alas, my master, alas, his splendor. He will have the burial of a donkey, dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Jehoiakim had a real taste for luxury. He ordered grand upgrades to the palace in Jerusalem, and archaeologists have discovered another private pad he had a few miles outside the city. At that time, cedar paneling was considered to be the height of luxury. And because of the expensive uh, pigment used in it, red paint was the most extravagant kind of paint available. And so naturally, that's what Jehoiakim had. The trouble was, when he came to the throne, Judah was not a prosperous place. It was a long, long way from the glory days of Solomon. So the only way Jehoiakim could pay for his personal luxury was by extracting slave labor from his own people. In his greed, he did not come close to doing what was just and right. He ruled by dishonest gain, oppression, and extortion. And at that time, Jeremiah announced God's verdict. Jehoiakim, the king who loves to be pampered, who loves to live in the greatest of luxury, he will have the burial of a donkey, which means he'll have no burial at all. Dead donkeys were thrown out as food for scavengers. People didn't bother to bury a dead donkey. And the point of all this is to illustrate the trouble with kings. They tend to be characterized by foolishness, weakness, greed, and oppression. The trouble with the bad ones is obvious. But even the good ones, even the ones we begin to hope in, they can be prone to making stupid decisions or they can easily be overcome by smarter, more powerful enemies. And if we remember, this line of kings stretched way back beyond Josiah and his sons, all the way back to David. And if we remember that they were all disappointing in the end, and it's no shock when the final verses of chapter 22 seem to describe the end of kings. After a few verses giving a general lament about Judah's leaders, chapter 24 focuses in on the one who came after Jehoiakim and just before Zedekiah. Verse 24, as surely as I live, declares the Lord, even if you, Jehoiachin, son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were a signet ring on my right hand, I would still pull you off. 
I will deliver you into the hands of those who want to kill you, those you fear. Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon and the Babylonians, I will hurl you and the mother who gave you birth into another country where neither of you was born and there you both will die. Nebuchadnezzar came and he looted Jerusalem during Jehoiachin's reign. He took 10,000 of the people into exile at that time, including Jehoiachin and his mother. But the most significant thing here is the reference to God's signet ring. A signet ring was what the king used to put his mark on official documents. It was the equivalent of his signature. And so it was very, very important. It was so important the king would never let it out of his possession. He would wear it on a cord round his neck. And here God says the king of Judah is supposed to be like God's signet ring. In other words, the king is supposed to be God's representative. The king should aim to carry out God's will. Just like the mark of a signet ring on a document would make sure those orders are carried out. But here God says, for too long, these human kings have failed to be my representatives. So they will no longer be my signet ring. I'm taking them off my finger and off the cord round my neck and I'm throwing them away. Meaning I'm done with this line of kings. That's underlined down in verse 30. Speaking still about Jehoiachin. This is what the Lord says. Record this man as if childless. A man who will not prosper in his lifetime. For none of his offspring will prosper. None will sit on the throne of David or rule anymore in Judah. Jehoiachin did have children. But the point is he may as well not have. Because none of them will inherit their father's throne. And that's what happened. Jehoiachin went into exile in Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar made his uncle Zedekiah king. And when Zedekiah rebelled, Nebuchadnezzar came back and took him away in chains. The line of kings descended from David didn't die out. They just stopped being kings. Like a signet ring thrown in the rubbish heap. They lived on, but with no power and no authority. And that seemed to be that. Kings had been tried. They had failed. So maybe God was done with kings. Or maybe he had plans for one last king. The name David has been mentioned four times in this passage. And David is significant, not just because he was a shepherd boy who became king, not just because he was the first in this long line of kings. The most significant thing about David is that God made a promise to him. God promised not only would a line of kings come from David, but one day an eternal king would come from that line. A king whose kingdom would last forever. And however much human beings may feel, God never fails. He does what he promised. And so at the start of chapter 23, God reminds all rebellious, self-serving kings. He reminds them they were called to be like shepherds who care for their people like a flock. A flock that belongs, in the end, to God. But because they've all failed, God says in chapter 23, verse 3, I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and will bring them back to their pasture where they will be fruitful and increase in number. I will place shepherds over them who will tend them. And they will no longer be afraid or terrified, nor will any be missing, declares the Lord. Yes, God has brought judgment. We've seen how the kings were part of the problem, but they weren't the whole problem. The people also rejected God. 
They didn't need very much encouragement to prostitute themselves to false gods. This book has shown us that as well. So God drove kings and people into exile. His judgment came on them all. But God's purposes were not done. In the future, he says, he will gather a people. Like a shepherd who searches for his lost sheep and carries them home. So they can be cared for and flourish without fear. And later in the Old Testament, we find some of the exiles did, in fact, come back to Judah. And God gave them not kings, but good leaders like Ezra, Nehemiah, Zerubbabel. Good leaders who shepherded a few thousand of the people back from exile. That's what verse 4 is referring to. But in verse 5, God speaks about something much grander than a few ragged exiles trudging home to Judah. It's a bit like a key change on the last verse of a song. It lifts the whole tone. Look at verse 5. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. This is the name by which he will be called, the Lord, our righteous Savior. So then the days are coming, declares the Lord, when people will no longer say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the Israelites up out of Egypt, but they will say, as surely as the Lord lives who brought the descendants of Israel up out of the land of the north and out of all the countries where he had banished them, then they will live in their own land. In the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt was the high point of Israel's story. Way back in Moses' time, about 850 years before this, God delivered the Israelites and he brought them to a new land. And so from then on, the Exodus became the center of Israel's faith. It's mentioned in the Old Testament again and again. The God they worshipped was the God of the Exodus. That was where God had shown his saving power in the greatest, most glorious way. But here God says, the days are coming when I will bring about a new exodus. And it will replace the first exodus as the focus of your faith. As a people, it will be that new exodus you celebrate forever and ever. The old one will pale into insignificance. Because I will gather a people, not just from one place, but from all places. And who will bring about this new, greater exodus? A king. A descendant of David who will come from what appeared to be the dead stump of David's family. He'll be like a fresh branch Spriting out of all those past failures and disappointments. And he will do what no other king ever managed to do. Verse 5 says, he will truly reign wisely. He will truly do what is just and right. Verse 6 says, he will bring salvation and safety. And his name will be the Lord, our righteous Savior. This king will be Finally, the Savior King. His rule will be God's rule. It won't fall short of God's will. It will perfectly accomplish God's will. This is the good shepherd who will gather the lost sheep. Bring them from all the world to the new heaven and earth. Where there will be no more foolishness or weakness, or greed, or oppression. No more death, or mourning, or crying, or pain. 
because the king of that new heaven and earth always does what is wise and just and right. And he will reign forever. Jeremiah didn't know his name. But we do. His name is Jesus. A descendant of David who told his Israelite disciples, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. In other words, not from among the Israelites. I must bring them also. They too will listen to my voice. And there shall be one flock and one shepherd. So on December the 12th, you and I will do the very best we can. We'll try to vote for justice and righteousness. But we will not put our hope in our MPs or our Prime Minister. Our hope is in the Savior King. The good shepherd who's gathering his sheep from every people and nation. Leading us to eternal justice and righteousness. And so it's very appropriate that during this election season, we will also be celebrating Advent. Next week is the first of the four Sundays of Advent, where we celebrate the first arrival of Jesus the King. And when we also look forward to his second arrival, when we'll enjoy his perfect peace and righteousness. So if you are not trusting in Jesus as your Savior, now is the time to put your trust in him. And if Jesus already is your good shepherd, now is the time to give thanks and to keep trusting him, whatever leaders we might have. Our last song helps us to acknowledge together that our trust is in him and nowhere else. So let's sing this together. In Christ alone, my hope is found.